Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. If you spent any time in some of the bigger cities, maybe out sharing the gospel or even out just with your family, you might have seen a number of men dressed differently sometimes, sometimes in purple, sometimes in somewhat older apparel that seems quite interesting. And a lot of times they're screaming out different things regarding biblical eschatology and teachings of whether or not the true Israelites are actually the black Hebrew Israelites and not those of Jerry Seinfeld and the like. But nonetheless, there is no better guest, I believe, right now to talk about this subject than Vocab Malone, who, with Urban Apologetics, has really been out on the front lines sharing the gospel with not only these guys, but people online all over. So we are so excited to welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, Vocab Malone. Welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on? Good to be with you, Chad. How you doing? Doing well, bro. And I am beyond excited to discuss this topic with you. I know you're used to uh, doing a lot of live shows on your channel. Make sure you guys check out Vocab Malone. We'll have a link in the description, obviously. But Vocab, you deal with subjects that I, I believe are so, so important. And we've had a number of people out on the streets. I know you're out there in Phoenix. We've been out there mm-hmm. just recently in NYC. But here locally, we're in California, and we do a lot of gospel sharing down in Santa Monica, and mm. we encounter a number of what people would call the, I guess what they would call the Hebrew Israelite movement, or mm. better known for maybe apologists as the Black Hebrew Israelite movement. And I want to get into yeah. that with you, but first, you also deal with urban apologetics. And I think people hear that and wonder, what on earth is urban apologetics? And I think that'd be a great place to start, is to just... What is urban apologetics? Urban apologetics is simply contextualized apologetics, contextualized specifically for the city and metropolitan areas. Um, or I'll sometimes also add those heavily influenced by those areas. And so apologetics is apologetics, but geography matters and culture matters. And the time on the calendar matters. You know, when is this now? Uh, Paul says to the Athenians, God has determined the times and seasons in which people live and the boundaries where they're at, you know. And uh, there's a reason why we're here now. And, And so when we talk about urban apologetics, we're understanding that there's some issues specific to certain context. And of course, uh, there's certain communities that are especially key within urban apologetics. Um, the black community, the Hispanic community sometimes gets less left out. But then there's also non-ethnic communities, I think, that are also relevant within this discussion of urban apologetics, such as what you might call the hip-hop community. So it's kind of all these things. And then you ask, what's being discussed here? What's what's the topic on the table that maybe is not discussed in the college classroom or in these academic papers or in more traditional debates on apologetics, such as um, 
issues of, you know, people were going to bring up white Jesus. It was just kind of like that. That would be the way the topics. What about white Jesus? People are going to bring up, um, honestly, things that they learned from memes. So you have to learn how to debunk memes. Um, people are going to bring up independently published books, uh, which is I'm nothing against those. I'm just saying you're off the beaten path a lot of times. Now, some of the issues are the same. Did the resurrection really happen or is the resurrection simply a ripoff from ancient comedic that is Egyptian gods? Is it just a dying, rising God story from ancient Egypt? That would be a lot of times in an urban apologetic context. But you also see that in other places. Atheists will bring up that trope as well. So there's overlap, but there's things that are specific and individual and unique. And so an urban apologist is someone who focuses on those. But within urban apologetics, there's different areas to focus on, just like within mainstream apologetics as well. So someone might focus on the Kemets. That's the Egyptologists, they sometimes call themselves. Someone else like myself might focus on Hebrew Israelism. Another per, per, person might, might focus on promoting a true knowledge of the history of the black church in America as a proactive step in urban apologetics. Uh, th so there's multiple things even with that. In Hispanic communities, it becomes very important to become uh, knowledgeable, for example, about Roman Catholic Church because that issue is going to be present uh, when you're dealing with – like in a city like in Phoenix or El Paso or Albuquerque, those places. And so that's not an urban context, contextual issue per se, but it kind of becomes one. It's like, okay, what's what do we need to look at? Nation of Islam. So those are some of the things that we deal with um, just to kind of differentiate it from mainstream apologetics, you know what I mean, which uh, there's overlap, but there's also some distinctions. No, I think that's really good. I mean, uh, like you mentioned, Paul, already, you know, specifically being all things to all people. And this is really, really important. And I, I, I got to know, how did you get kind of involved in this? Because like you said, there's just your, your traditional apologists. You know, we have our guys that we tip our caps to, you know, maybe that are more of the white collar uh, apologists and so forth. And then you have people, like you said, down there in the streets and whether it is understanding what's going on in the Hispanic community or in the black community as well or in the hip-hop community, as, as you mentioned, how did you get yourself involved in this line of apologetics? Sometimes I feel a little bit like uh, the Joker in The Dark Knight, where he's like, do I look like a guy with a plan? <laughs> and it's like, first of all, the, that's a funny line, because the whole movie, the Joker has been planning out things. He planned a bank robbery, you know, he planned, anyways. But that's kind of the way I feel. Um, my fr my friends were doing some street evangelism down uh, in the campus area, and I was like, oh, I'll go too. You know, I'm a college student. Sounds like a great idea. And I go in down there, and then I just run into whatever I encounter. And so I encountered a lot of atheists. I encountered a lot of the, the, the neo-atheists now, they would have been called at that time, uh, people influenced by Dawkins and those guys. I encountered a lot of Christ mythicists. Jesus didn't exist. He's a ripoff from the ancient gods, da da da, da. I encountered... Um, um, you know, what people would call postmodern or relativists. And so those are kind of the things I was studying. And then in my neighborhood I lived in, I was constantly running into Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and to a certain extent Catholics. But then things started changing and I started running into Muslims more. So I, I was dealing with Islam. Then I moved neighborhoods and then I started running into Hebrew Israelites. And so it really is uh, for me just where I live and I'm, I'm kind of a city kid, you know, uh, and it's like I see this right there, and I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm, I'm the best person for the job, but I'm a person for the job, and so let's go. And um, I kind of just fell into it, and then I realized that there was a big need there, and I 
said, well, Lord, maybe I can play a role, not the role. I'm just one among many, but maybe I can play a role in uh, raising awareness about Hebrewism specifically and uh, helping the church be protected, but also knowing how to reach out. And so just trying to play a role within where I think God has me right now. And it really just happens to be because I've lived in the city and I run into these things. And I was like, well, this is interesting. This is important. This is fascinating. Who's dealing with this? Oh, not a lot of people. Well, maybe I'll do it. So uh, uh, not because I have a plan, but the Lord just drops me in these places and then it's around me, you know? No, I love that. You know, it's really interesting uh, how this kind of comes out full circle for myself because I remember after I came to Christ and then began being discipled, uh, I immediately was taken out on the streets and to share the gospel out in Santa Monica. And same thing, I would run into atheists and mythicists and mm-hmm. so forth, and then Catholics as well. And then Islam was typically, was really for me, what really opened my eyes to apologetics, being like, wait, I got to know the answer to all these different questions. And, and you start finding guys online and so forth. And then some guys that mm-hmm. I was discipling, they were out on uh, in more closer to Venice, actually, I think at this time, and they run into some black Hebrew Israelites. And mm. they said, hey, I, I got into this debate and, and so forth. And I said, hey, this is the research that I have, and, and I'll give you a kind of a teaching on it. Most of it was just from the book of Galatians and so forth. But I said, there, there's this guy, his name's Vocab Malone. He does a great job on this subject, uh, and you got to check him out. And then I did an episode on it on our 511 News uh, show, and that is still the most disliked uh, video that I think we put out and probably the most amount of deleted comments because of the obscene things that were said, none other than about you. So I said, man, if we can get him on, I'd love to talk to him about, as you mentioned, Hebrew Israelism. Now, you could also tell me, I guess you could start out with telling me why the differential there of where we would, we'll put in the title, Black Hebrew Israelites, and they would say, no, 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 we are just... Hebrew Israelites, but you can kind of just give us an overview of what on earth we're dealing with here. Yeah. When um, people started noticing this phenomenon, you might say of uh, mainly black Americans being interested and involved in Judaism. uh, At first, uh, scholars would just say this is a black Judaism. That's what they would call it at that time. Right. Um, But then what happened is um, it branched out from not just being sort of Judaism or those types of movements to starting to incorporate elements of the new Testament. And when that happened, it was like, well, what are the similarities? And really the, the main thing is this, this central, the central idea is that black Americans are the real Jews. So there's a, there's a range and a network of diverse beliefs within Hebrew Israelism, but the central idea and the, the bare minimum idea is black Americans are the real Jews. You can add other things, such as Hispanics are also part of the tribes of Israel, but not all Hebrews let's do that. You can add the New Testament or or not. You see what I'm saying? But the key thing is, though, black Americans are the real Jews. Like I said, there's other stuff there. And the problem is the other stuff is where all the heresy comes in. Because this idea alone, it may be historically dubious, black Americans are the real Jews, but it doesn't reach to the level of damnable heresy. It's that you can't find that idea for whatever reason without heresy attached to it. And so I call it Hebrew Israelism. I'm not the only one. There's other scholars who call it black Israelism. But the idea is to focus on the fact that it's a set of ideas or an ideology as opposed to just like a group. 
you know, Hebrew Israelites, that's like a group. But if you say Hebrew Israelism, the Israelism is understanding that this is a an idea, a concept. And they would say, hey, look, black Hebrew Israelite is redundant. Uh, why do you have to put that on there? You're using that like it's a pejorative, even though if that's not the true, you know, even if that's not someone's intent, that's the way they look at it now. And they'll also say it's redundant because Israelites are black. But then other ones don't think all Israelites are black. They just think that they would be included in the number. So, for example, Hebrews lights who believe in something called the 12 tribes chart, they would say, we're not black Hebrews lights. Look, we've got Native Americans, too. We've got Hispanics. So it's not a – what do you mean black? It's not just a – so they would they would say it's not even accurate to try to use that terminology as well, and so um, there's debate about this. But it, what's interesting is really if you study the history of this, it's only more recent that a lot of them started having problems with Black Hebrew Israelites. They a lot of the groups used to call themselves or refer to themselves as the Black Israelites or the Black Hebrews. Some of them still occasionally do, but these days it's like no, we're just the Hebrews, we're just the Israelites. But the problem is it's hard to just say you're a Hebrew, you're an Israelite, because you're essentially granting one of their claims, right? And so it's like, well, we don't want to do that. So a lot of times I'll put it in writing. I might put Hebrew Israelites because I know that Hebrews don't go by Hebrew Israelites and Israelites or Israelis also don't go by that. So it's like only talking about that one group. And then I usually put it in quotation marks to let people know it's a contested phrase. And so that's one way to deal with it. But really, I try to focus on the fact that it's Hebrew Israelism. It's a set of ideas. Now, they don't like that. They'll say, what's that? We don't, we don't use that terminology. But there's a precedent for it because prior to Hebrew Israelism or Black Israelism, as some scholars call it, there's something called British Israelism or Anglo-Israelism, which is the idea that Europe, people of European descent and, and their descendants, such as those found in America, are actually uh, part of the tribes of Israel uh, and sometimes they would add on um, the Jews, but sometimes they wouldn't. There's different versions of these beliefs. But that was about 100 years or so prior to when we first discovered black Israelism. And so there's a precedent because that's what that was called by scholars and apologists alike as well as British Israelism or Anglo Israelism. So it's almost kind of falling on the heels of that idea as well. Now, I, you know, we had uh, a few guys that they were out sharing the gospel and next thing you know, they came across them. And uh, their use of rhetoric is very interesting as well. And then one of the things they also did was uh, act like they were casting lots onto which person they were going to be, uh, they were going to enslave out of the uh, evangelists <laughs> that happened to be there at the time. Uh, and they were really excited about this, it seems as though. And, I, you know, I to me, I had to say, okay, so what on earth, because like I said, I, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have probably never even heard of it. And if they have heard of it, it's only been a quick thing. You know, they, they heard about it, thought it was crazy and kind of went off the sides. So people may not realize that it's growing at all. They may also think it's really a, a small thing and think, oh, it's just a, some obscure thing that these these people believe that so forth. But is this something that is is more serious? Is this something that, that is actually growing uh, here in the United States? Well, yeah, it is, and it's not just in the U.S., though. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's a group called IUIC, Israel United in Christ, and uh, they're based originally in New York, but they spread all throughout the country, constantly opening up new chapters. But they're probably one of the most um, missionary-minded, zealous for missions, as it were, and uh, they raise a lot of funds to go to other places. Jamaica, Virgin Islands, 
Barbados, Bahamas, Haiti. I don't, I don't know for sure if they've been to every single place I named, but those are kind of places on their target. And some of those I do know they've been to. But then they also will uh, say, well, some of our people are still in West Africa. So they'll go to Freetown, Sierra Leone, for example, or Liberia. And there's reasons why they basically usually say part of what it means to be an Israelite is you had to have come across in some way the journey of the transatlantic slave trade, although they don't make that definitive. That's an element of what they believe is a prophetic uh, telltale sign about who's a real Israelite. So if you look at Freetown, some of the people in Freetown are actually um, were freed slaves or, or something like that. They all have different stories. And so that's, I think, where it actually got its name from, from was Freetown. And so it's like, well, hey, these were people who did experience the curses. This is the way they would put it, the curses of Deuteronomy 28, which they believe is sort of a scriptural DNA test in a sense. But let's go, let's go find them. And those who receive the message must be the Israelites because a group like IUIC doesn't believe Africans are actually Israelites, but they believe Israelites were in Africa. So my point is, it's not just in the U.S. now. It's spreading because these places, it's growing because they they uh, they know how to slice and dice these a lot of these local pastors. And so you get people turning to it. Uh, and it's in London. There's a lot of videos you can find of them at Speaker's Corner, places like that as well. And so it is growing. There's something called the Philos Project, and they've done some uh, analysis. They, they do a lot of research on people's views of Jews and Israel and things like that. Uh, uh, and they recently did one that was – what about black Americans' attitudes towards Israel and the Jews, right? So we'll specifically focus on that element. And within that, they asked people, have you heard about the teachings of the Hebrew Israelites? So it was just one question upon a survey, which had a sample size of over a thousand. Forget the exact number, but you can look this up if you if you uh, Google the kind of words I'm talking about, and you can actually download the report itself on a PDF. Here's the Here's my point. About 4% of all black Americans surveyed said they identify as a Hebrew Israelite. Not just they've heard about their teachings or they agree with them, but they, they are one. That may not sound like a number, but if that number is extrapolated out to the, the number of black Americans in the United States of America, there's some debate about how to tabulate that. Do you tabulate somebody who's, quote, half and all this kind of silly stuff? But basically, even on a conservative estimate, if the 4% number is right, that would be about a million and a half black Americans who identify as an Israelite. Now, does that mean there's a million and a half people who are willing to dress in fringes on a Saturday morning, go out and hold a sandwich board with the 12 tribes sign and then say, let's cast lots on who's going to be our slave? No, because that kind of Hebrewism is this militant variety is a specific kind. So there's all kinds of varieties. It's just most people know about the more militant kind first because those tend to be the guys on the corners and making some of the most uh, viral internet videos. Now, not all. There's moderate Hebrew Israelites and other varieties. There's Old Testament only Hebrew Israelites. There's guys who don't go out on the corner who do more just online stuff. There's ones who have churches that look more like traditional churches. So there's a broad spectrum. So when you think Hebrew Israelite, Yes, the guys on the corner are an element, but they're not the only one. They're sort of like the Fred Phelps within Hebrewism. But uh -huh. the thing is, that's not exactly a correct comparison because there's like one – Fred Phelps is dead now. But that church is like this oddball church within evangelicalism. These one West guys, that's the type of Hebrewism 
it's one West Heberism, and I could explain that if you want. But these one West guys, well, there's a whole bunch of them, and they're growing too. So they're much more representative of a faction of the movement. But it is growing. It is a serious thing. There's even been whole churches split, and even in a couple cases we know about churches that actually flipped into Hebrews like churches. So it's not just out there on the corner. It's coming to a church near you as well. You know, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask, you know, and I would love for you to go into maybe the differences, uh, so forth, and maybe this can piggyback onto that as well concerning one West Hebrew Israelism. But when it comes to it, and you even talked about a little bit about how they dress and so forth, it seems to me from someone kind of more of a layman looking into it that the leaders of the movement seem to have a lot of authority about what uh, they believe and so forth. And so I'm wondering if that is, is that a, a proper reflection of what you have seen in your own studies, that it seems like the leaders in these movements, I don't know, General Yohanan and so forth, that whatever <laughs> is believed by them and taught, it seems like they do have authority. Similar, I guess I guess the stretch I would have to make would be similar to in Mormonism, when you read through the Journal of Discourses and so forth and see Brigham Young and Joseph Smith and so mm-hmm. forth. Uh, where those leaders did teach a lot of the doctrines and it kind of did have a lot of uh, fuzziness, so to speak. Yeah, that's um, an interesting comparison. And that's why some people say elements of this movement look very cultic. So, you know, you brought up General Yohanna. General Yohanna is one of the best or worst examples of Hebrew Israelism looking cultic. Uh He calls himself a general, so he has a military title. Interesting. He's not pastor. He's not elder. He's not bishop. He's General Yohanna, and he calls himself the commanding General Yohanna. So when people in his organization refer to him, they don't call him General Yohanna. They say the commanding General Yohanna. This is done under the authorization of the commanding General Yohanna. And since ISUPK claims to be the home of the truth, so ISUPK, Israelite School of Universal Practical Knowledge, they're another One West school. And you can look up their website and see that they've got camps all over uh, the world to an extent, mainly the U.S., but they're in Britain as well. You'll see that the ISUPK believes that they essentially are the only Israelite group that Yahweh, but they don't call him Yahweh, they call him Yahweh. Yahweh is dealing with. That's the way that they'll phrase it. And because of that, commanding General Yohanna is not just the leader of ISUPK. He's the rightful leader of Israel. And so because of that, one of his taglines that they will put under his name and refer to him as, as they'll say, commanding General Yohanna, second only to Christ. <laughs> oh, and so I brought this up to one of them before, not just one, but in one particular instance. And I said, so David, you know, Joseph, out of all, General Johanna is second only to Christ. And uh, they said, well, you know, those guys aren't here right now. So currently on the earth, he's second only to Christ. I was like, well, you should say that because that's not the way it sounds. And then I'll say, wait, but also don't you guys believe in reincarnation? Because the one Westers believe in reincarnation. Well, yeah, I say, so wait a minute. What if uh, Moses, for example, is back in the flesh right now? How could commanding General Yohanna be greater than uh, the reincarnation of Moses? And the guy said to me, I kid you not, he said, well, yeah, but maybe he's like young. Maybe that guy who's reincarnated as Moses is just a baby right now. Wow. (laughs) That's a funny answer. (laughs) And so you have this uh, thing where they really call him the commanding General Yohanna, second only Christ, and ISUBK is the home of the truth, right? So 
clearly that sounds very cultic and they they push hard on a 10 percent tithe and then they have these other little charges they hit you with all year like the passover fee and all this kind of stuff and so it's like man this looks pretty cultic then there's other groups that are a lot more loose and they look less cultic but this guy hulan mitchell who went by yahweh bin yahweh he was down there in Miami, became very big in the 80s and the 90s, even to the point where the mayor of Miami gave him a key to the city and declared a Hulan Mitchell Day before it was all the great work they did for the community. Well, it turns out that they had a whole racket operation going on, all kinds of children and women abuse. And, and then they started killing ex-members or people who were saying bad stuff about him and uh, even killing random white folks like, you know, hey, bring me back a white man's ear. And so that's why this book by a by a secular journalist is is subtitled Murder, Money, and a Messiah. So he eventually went to prison for all this because he got charged with basically commanding murders. And uh, he, I mean, he called himself Yahweh Ben Yahweh, God, Son of God. That's who that's who he was. And so this group was called the Nation of Yahweh. Now they've lost a lot of their power and influence, as you can imagine. Now. But you still will run into followers of Yahweh bin Yahweh. They still exist. And it's frightening to think, could there be another group that arises like them? Because even though the nation of Yahweh was an aberration of Hebrew Israelism, it's still Hebrew Israelism. When you read what he taught and everything, yeah, he centered it on himself, but it's Hebrew Israelism. And that's the thing. There's no kind of centralized authority, and there's really no um, true canon for these groups because they essentially a lot of times have their leader basically as part of their canon. And with the Bible, you don't know what they're going to do with that. Like Sakari, for example, was another group. They say Paul's writings aren't aren't canonical, and some of the Gospels aren't canonical. And so it's like, okay, what's canonical in the New Testament? Why do you say you hold of the New Testament then? And so it's like, what are you really listening to? Because then they'll say, well, the Apocrypha is canonical. And my point by saying that is they all have different authority structures and things they point to. And at the end of the day, it's kind of like Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not really what's in the text. It's how it's filtered out, filtered through the leader, filtered through the organization, filtered through essentially the traditions of men to get you the interpretation. And so there is some concern there. Will it ever become, you know, a million Jonestowns? No, I don't think so. But are there is there enough potential there as this thing grows for problematic offshoots? I think you're going to see that increase where I think little by little, you're going to see a little group over here that's a little more radicalized, a little group over here that mixes in other ideas from other religions. So we've seen Hebrew Israelites uh, here and there mix ideas from Islam. Now, this is these are rare groups, okay, or rare individuals. But as this thing grows, I, I think this syncretism is going to happen more, and I think it's going to be a bad sign for the future of the movement. I think it will create more problems. But that's just me uh, uh, looking at trends I'm seeing. Oh yeah. Uh, but yes, it, it is something people should be concerned about, Chad. No, I, I yeah, it's it's obviously very concerning and you know, you're talking about a lot of the differences and it it's very interesting when you talk about leaders in the movement and not having uh, a canon, really a true canon, you know, a standard by which we can judge everything else by and so forth. But what are what is like a similarity? You'd say that something that it's a connective tissue that this is one thing or maybe a couple things that Everyone, it doesn't matter, you know, what group they're with, everyone seemingly, if they're involved in Hebrew Israelism, they kind of, they all hold to this or deny this. Yeah, it would be this. Uh, black folks are the real Jews, and those so-called Jews are fake. Those seriously are the 
the two main elements. Now you can add some other things in there that would be like the 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 essence of Hebraism. Sometimes when I give a talk, I'll, I'll, I'll list out four. And right now, off the top of my head, I actually forget what the other two are. I have to bring it up on my nose. But I can tell you those are those are the those are like two key things there. Because I can't say that it's they all agree on the scripture, that they all agree Jesus is the Messiah, because that, none of that stuff's true. But they all do agree about this. We are the real Israelites, and those guys are fakes. Those two things are across the board. Another thing that is is um, a commonality, I don't know if it's a central uniting tenet, but to an extent it might be, is the Judaizing or the legalizing tendency of them. So all of them have a shared conviction that, uh, the, for example, the Christian church doesn't properly teach the law, that the church doesn't understand the law. And so all of them have that tendency to emphasize the law in a in a way that I think is foreign to the New Testament, unless you're talking about the heretics inside the New Testament. And so I would say that's another element that you can say, ah, um, and then if I was going to add something else, it would be there's a few exceptions to it, a denial of the Trinity. And you might even say denial of the full deity of Christ. But see, you can meet an individual Israelite every now and then who says they accept the Trinity. But that's an interesting exercise. When a Hebrewsite says they accept the Trinity, when you start talking about it, almost always they sound oneness. Now, mm. I'm talking about rare exceptions even within the movement because most of them are uh, pretty – hardcore dead set against the the doctrine of the trinity but when you meet one who says they're for it they almost always end up sounding oneness or a lot of them will uh deny the deity of christ if you meet one who says they affirm the deity of christ talk to them because a lot of times they sound like uh, jehovah's witnesses so the deity of christ is he's a created deity in essence right which is no deity at all as far as the bible is concerned or he's one of many uh, a similar related concept where they almost take some of the idea of like a plurality of gods and uh, or that Elohim is this divine family and Jesus is one of the gods from the divine family. This is a more this is kind of where this is a little more sophisticated version of Hebrewism. It's not common to run into these guys who overemphasize Psalm 82, for example, but they essentially sound polytheistic, some of them. But again, this there's these are exceptions. Most Hebrewsites essentially deny the deity of Christ. They deny the triune nature of God. And of course, there's a legalizing tendency as well, where they essentially make the law, the law rather, uh, a requirement for being in good standing with God. I can't even say to be saved though, because most of their versions of what the afterlife and what the kingdom look like are all twisted and messed up. And uh, like the guys who were betting on you guys to see which one of you guys would be slaves, those kinds of Hebrews lights, the one West Hebrews lights, they believe in something that I've termed ethnic uh, universalism ethnic universalism and that is anyone that we deem inside of this ethnicity is automatically going to be in the kingdom at some point now they may go through a temporary punishment but they will be in the kingdom and uh that kind of ethnic universalism destroys uh the gospel obviously it's kind of like you're just it's, it's salvation by race through fate instead of salvation by grace through faith <laughs> it's salvation by race through fate and so some of them teach that, like the one Westers. Other ones say, no, 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 the wicked Israelites are going to be judged. And in fact, righteous Gentiles can be grafted in. So some of them would say that so-called Gentiles can still be in the kingdom in some way uh, ahead of a wicked Israelite, as long as the righteous Gentile knows their place. Like GOCC might say something somewhat similar to that, although it seems like they also hold to the ethnic universalism. And so um, that legalizing, moralizing tendency 
it's different than in Christianity because they don't even really mean saved in the same way. They just mean like you're partaking in a kingdom. And some of them have in that kingdom, as you mentioned prior, an idea of there will be in other nations enslaved to them eternally. Some even have the idea of sex slaves. Now, not all of them, but some of them do. So there's levels of like kind of how crass and vile they get. But uh, that again, I, I got to reemphasize there's distinctions within Hebrew Islamism. So Hebrews like might be watching this chat and say, well, vocab didn't describe my beliefs. And that may be very well true. That's why I'm trying to tell you streams or strands. I'm not describing everybody because it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, it is very interesting to hear, as you said, all the streams and strands and so forth and all the acronyms you're throwing out there uh, for the different belief systems. And, you know, one of the things I had also heard a long time ago when I was first hearing about this movement was the idea of polygamy. But but I don't believe that's actually what they actually practice. A lot of them, I would say. Uh, you would say the different sects. So I don't know. Maybe this is something where are there some sects that don't practice? It's not even polygamy. It's it's actually something else. It's uh, Is it polygyny? They call is that, it polygyny. Is that polygyny. Because the ones who uh, go to bat for it say, well, it's not just multiple. You know, it's it's a man with multiple women. So that to them, that's polygyny. So, yeah, some of them pla- practice polygyny. So ISUPK, we mentioned them, they teach polygyny. And in fact, <laughs> they say that uh, if your woman isn't down with it, it's because the, the, the fault is with her. She's selfish. She needs to learn to share her man. <laughs> and okay. ISUPK teaches that uh, this polygyny is something important for the nation to learn because it teaches them how to properly manage resources and wealth and things like that. So it's important for them to learn. Sakari teaches polygyny as well. And they say the woman has like a Jezebel, Jezebel spirit if she's not down with it. Essentially, that the woman herself is a whore uh, if she does not go along with her man's adoption of polygyny. Um, some, some of them teach it sort of uh, like secretly, you know, where it's like unclear about their exact uh, – uh, teaching on it. Um, and uh, a lot of the groups outright deny it. Like IUIC will say, no, 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 that's not in the Bible. But IUIC comes out of a context where almost all the other groups that they were with do and did teach polygyny. So they're an exception. It's essentially something they've altered from their background. I guess you could say it's an improvement, hypothetically. But I think Nathaniel, the leader of IUIC, realizes that uh, strong middle caste f- families are the ways for a cult to gain stability and almost kind of br- knock on the door of a becoming a religion versus a cult kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, you're not going to get a lot of stable families if you're teaching polygyny, right? Yeah. And so they kind of done away with that. And um, as far as IUIC, and then there's some of the other groups that just like, no, no, that's that's totally foul. That's not for us. So it really depends on the group you're asking. I think the ones in Demona, Israel, uh, that actually migrated from Chicago back in the 60s and eventually wound up in Demona, Israel, um, those guys called the African Hebrew Israelites of Jerusalem, who used to be led by Ben Ami until his death, and he was considered a spiritual advisor to Whitney Houston. The African Hebrew Israelites of Jerusalem, who are still there, maybe about 5,000 of them perhaps in Demona, Israel, uh, I guess my understanding is they're polygamous, and they're also, I think, vegan, a lot of them. So sometimes I say, yeah, you have in the middle of Israel a polygamous vegan cult. <laughs> 
you know, and uh, they don't like that. And and they tend to be nice people. You know, they 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 pride their areas of living. They call it the village of peace. So they they, they seem to tend to be nice people. But nonetheless, they seem to be also a polygamous vegan cult. And uh, that's a reality as well. So some of them do teach that in the here and now. And sometimes you get these individual leaders who will go off on their own. And that becomes really bad. Uh, probably the worst example of that was uh, – let me see. Let me make sure I get the name right. Let me make sure I get their name right. Yeah, Peter Moses. Peter Moses. Uh, that was a bad, bad story. Uh, he was uh, leading his own little polygamous cult and shot and killed one of his own sons. Oh, wow. And then uh, also to cover it up. Uh, I think the mom, this was back in 2011 when this story came out. Peter Moses had come out of a group called GMS, Great Millstone Israelites, who are pretty uh, radical. They're the, they would believe in sex, sex slaves in the kingdom, for example. <clears throat> he came out of them, though, so he was no longer officially part of them. I want to make that clear. But uh, he essentially kind of set up his own kind of radical version of GMS basically in his house. And had all these women living there, and you know, all all their phones had to had to say uh, Lord. So when he was calling, it was Lord calling, and they would refer to him as my Lord, and all this kind of stuff. So uh, the Peter Moses situation was pretty bad. You can look that up if you would just put Peter Moses polygamy. But again, that's an aberration of Hebrewism. But Hebrewites want to sometimes act like that stuff doesn't exist. It does. Usually, if you bring it up, they devolve into what aboutism? You know, what about Jim Baker? What about Jim Sawyer? What about Joel Osteen? What about you know that kind of thing? But yeah, the the what about is them on and the problem is is that there's a standard for truth we can go back to in the scripture and they can't necessarily do that with all of their wild leaders. But one of the things I noticed you brought up as well, you talked talked about um the spiritual leader of Whitney Houston, and people may not know and they may think these are just fringe groups. You're talking about polygyny, you're talking about some pretty strange things. But people may not know that there are a ton of kind of well-known celebrities, some some in the rap game, some of the biggest names in the rap game. In fact, Kendrick Lamar, who a lot of people think is maybe the best rapper out there right now, most talented mm-hmm. at least. But he himself, even his last album, does it not have um, you know something that has a lot to do with this movement? Yeah, Kendrick Lamar is not someone you would see on a Saturday for example, out on camp per se, but he was getting uh, mentored by his cousin who was in one of those kind of groups. He was mentored by uh, his cousin named Carl, Carl Duckworth. And uh, Carl's messages to Kendrick appeared on the album. The album was called Damn, all caps, D-A-M-N. And uh, so you actually had a Hebrew Zolite soldier essentially teaching on the kendrick lamar album in my little book i have a chapter on it it's called De- deuteronomy 28 and kendrick lamar where i i talk about this situation about his album specifically and uh that's one example but in the beginning of the chapter i mentioned some other people that are in some way are affiliated with hebrew Islamism. again this doesn't mean they're affiliated with the radical sex but brandon jackson an actor uh chingy at one point seems like he's no longer involved with it amari stoudemire now he's more involved with the ones in israel sean stockman and wayna morris from boys to men they were involved with icggc uh zab judah uh, a boxer lamon lamon uh, brewster meldrick taylor 
Taylor, Whitney Houston, Kodak Black has flirted with it. He's a rapper down in Florida. He flirts, flirts with a group called the uh, the Light of Zion, I believe is the name of that group. Oh, some people have said Waka Flocka seems to have some uh, some ties with it. And then going back older school hip hop, you got Killer Priest, and he was actually in a camp, like he was actually out on the street and everything. Uh, Sons of Man, who are Wu Tang affiliate, Kendrick Ferris, Dougie Fresh, uh, seem to have some elements back in the day that you can now discern that are there. And Antoine Donson, the uh, hide your wife for hide your kids guy, uh, <laughs> ran with Hebrews Lights for a while. And that, those are some examples. And then there's a lot of apparently, uh, Ex NFL players coming out of the NFL, as well as a couple current ones who uh, are involved, especially with a group called Straightway Truth. And I, I actually was interviewed uh, from um, for a newspaper uh, called the Tennessean. They did a whole story on it because they're based there in Tennessee. And so they interviewed me about this group, Straightway Truth, that has a lot of former NFL players in it and involved with it, and in fact in leadership. And also, Sports Illustrated did a multi multi part story on the si.com or whatever the website is. And they interviewed me for that as well. And so you can, you can look and read that story. And it's all about one guy in particular who used to play for green Bay, but uh, it gets into some other ones as well, like an ex Indianapolis Colt player. And so these were ones involved a straightway, but they're not the only camp who has ex NFL players. Sakari had one, uh, the guy from jagged edge and RBC group. He, he was, he devolved over into Hebrewism. Uh, there's some evidence that, um, Horace Grant, Chicago Bull player, oh, wow. he's been seen at some of their parties and some of their events and taking pictures with him. Now, some of these guys' level of involvement or interest is, is not always exactly clear. You know what I mean? It's like, are they giving lip service? How dedicated are they paying money into these groups? It's not always clear, the, 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 um, the connection. But what's interesting is it's like becoming a much more religiously uh, viable alternative within the cities and within uh, the community where it's not just like my pastor, my this or that, they, they, cause there's nominal Christians too, right? Thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the winning this, winning this award, you know, for this album, I got about killing people. Well, now you're <laughs> kind of getting that within Hebrewism where part of the plausibility structure of the religious landscape is becoming Hebrewism as a, a viable element. So it's not like everyone's joined up or clicked up all the time and in a hundred percent official capacity, although some are, it's like, uh, it's like you you see how it's in some ways supplanting the influence of the church and the culture. So, hey, I'm in trouble. I'm not going to call my pastor. I'm going to call this local Hebrew Israelite leader because he's a righteous guy. And so that's a reality as well. But I think that is important for people to understand the change that's happening there. Yeah, I remember it was just, I believe it was just last year, Deshaun Jackson of the Eagles. Um, yep, that's he, another, I did a whole show on that. Yep. Yeah, he, he was sharing stuff from there and, and so from forth. A, and From a couple of Hebrews like books, yeah, specifically. And he was even sharing some memes. Yeah, that's, yeah. And, so, and you know, and uh, Ice Cube as well was sharing some memes. Yep. I know you did a show on that. We also did a show on that. That was the show that got a lot of dislikes because I mentioned you on that show uh, specifically. But, you know, I, I think it's be a great time because you mentioned uh, your chapter in Barack Obama versus the black Hebrew Israelites. You mentioned in that chapter you touch on and you've touched on it a couple times, but I'd really like to know Deuteronomy 28. And then we're, you know, hopefully this will kind of open up a little bit on how we can better defend the faith against these movements and so forth. But Deuteronomy chapter 28 is, as you mentioned, somewhat of a DNA test, so to speak, for black Hebrew Israelism or just Hebrew Israelism. And how do they use that? And how would you counteract someone who's saying, hey, this is the transatlantic slave trade, this is so forth. 
blah, 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 and using those texts uh, against somebody who would take a position differently than them. Yeah, so if you look at Deuteronomy 28, you know, there it is in the the end of the Torah. And uh, Moses is talking to Israel. God is talking to Israel through Moses. And it's like, hey, uh, you do what God says, you'll get blessings. That's verses 1 through 14. You don't do what God says. You know, you don't keep the covenant in essence. You violate the covenant. Here's the curses. That's 15 through 28. And so what they do is, uh, Hebrews are light interpreters, will go through the curse section of Deuteronomy 28. And they'll point out specific things, give a quick kind of like commentary and be like, who does that describe? Who's that talking about? And the constant refrain will be like, it can't be those you know, people over there in the land. They might say something like that. They're referring to like Israelis or whatnot. It can't be them. But who does it sound like? And verse 68 is always their, uh, their sort of their punchline. And uh, I can show you a few of these, but I'll show you verse 68 in particular. Now, I'm going to read from the ESV, but they prefer the KJV. I'll read the KJV because there is one difference that would be somewhat significant in the translation. The ESV is more accurate but in this instance, but I'll show it to you nonetheless in both so you can see. First from the ESV, Deuteronomy 28:68, And the Lord, now a lot of them when they're reading it would probably say, and Yahweh, but and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Now I'm going to read in the KJV, Deuteronomy 28:68, And uh, this isn't the only verse that they use, okay? But this is like their John 3:16 in a sense, uh, in the KJV. And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships. By the way whereof I spoke, I spake unto thee, thou shalt see it no more again. And there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Okay, now, the difference there is you'll sell yourselves or you'll be sold. That's the difference. Now, it doesn't really change the, the main essence or the thrust of the passage, but uh, the ESV rendering is better. And... Uh, there's actually a good chapter in the book Urban Apologetics edited by Eric Mason, and he did a chapter on Hebrew Israelites, and he discusses Deuteronomy 28, and I recommend people check out that discussion, and he gets into that. It's a pretty good discussion, but let's just break this down real quick. The Lord shall bring thee into Egypt to give with ships. What they do is they'll go through passages or they'll say uh, passages that, that, that refer to Egypt as your house of bondage. And they'll say, okay, so the Lord's going to bring me back uh, into Egypt again with ships. Well, Egypt there just means into slavery or into a place of bondage. And notice it's ships. So we know it's not talking about Egypt, they'll say, because you wouldn't need to go to Egypt in a ship. You would just walk there like they did the first time. So the ships can't be the literal Egypt. It must mean a place into slavery. What people group did go into uh, ships that you know of in mass for hundreds of years into a place of slavery. So it's essentially describing the transatlantic slave trade there. Although it's interesting to note, uh, the Lord will bring you into Egypt again with ships. Well, you have uh, ships that are they're taking as literal there, but they're taking Egypt as figurative. So it's I think that's an interesting thing. And they'll, and they'll say, well, yeah, but the place is real, and the place would be United States or wherever we were taken. 
And sometimes they'll actually just start calling it slave ships. But the the, the word he, in the Hebrew doesn't say it doesn't say slave ship. It just says ships. I think that's important because they'll sometimes add that word in there. But here's the thing: I'll bring thee into Egypt again, again. So I asked them, "Can you return to a place you've never been?" Unless you're telling me the Israelites have art had already been in America and were enslaved there, then you can't go back into there with the ship. And they'll say, no, well, it's saying back into, into slavery. And I'll say, okay, let's look at this passage, and let's see if that understanding of Egypt works out. I'm going to go to the beginning of Deuteronomy 28, right? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to type in the word Egypt here, and then I'm going to look for the places that where Egypt appears in Deuteronomy 28, because what's going to happen is you're going to see that when it refers to uh, <clears throat> when it refers to Egypt here, uh, it's going to mean literal Egypt. So let me show you what I mean here. Deuteronomy twenty eight sixty. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. So what's one of the curses of Deuteronomy twenty eight? The Israelites, you're going to get some of the same stuff the Egyptians got. The diseases of Egypt. So it's the diseases of that actual place. It's not saying the diseases from the house of bondage or slavery. It's saying the diseases that the people in actual Egypt got. So that verse 60 is also important because what it shows you is Yahweh's ultimate promise of destruction upon Israel is he's essentially going to undo the exodus. That's why they're going back into slave back into slavery, in essence, via ships to Egypt specifically, because it's the undoing of the exodus. And that's why, oh, before it was just the Egyptians who got those diseases, but now you're going to get them. But my point by bringing up verse 60 is to show that Egypt is actually the real place there. It's like it's Egypt, Egypt. That's not the only time it's mentioned. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 28, verse 27 as well, which says, the Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt and the emirads and with the scab with itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. And, uh, just to understand what those are in the ESV, here's what it says. It says, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. So again, Egypt is the actual place, Egypt. That's what it is, right? You see that? And so when we get to verse 68, it's strange to turn it into this metaphorical thing that just means a house of bondage only. But not only that, but uh, we do have examples of where it, it looks like, and even if it's not canonical, it was being written about in like 4th Maccabees where Israelites were taken to Egypt in ships. And whenever I bring up the pastors, they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it doesn't say that uh, they were going into slavery. Da, da, da. But when you look about it, 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 it's clear that's what was going on. Josephus also describes people going into Egypt uh, as slavery. And they'll say, oh, but, it, but it doesn't mention ships. So the point is this kind of thing actually has been fulfilled in Israelite history. And it's not impossible that you would have ships that would do it. It's, it's not impossible at all that you would, would want to take the land route. They act like it's an impossibility. It's not the case. It's an impossibility. You could go to the port of Alexandria right there because that'd be the perfect place to go to, and that's exactly what you would do. That's a common trip to make. And so they 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 sell you on the idea, well, that, that wouldn't be the case. So you're going to go back into Egypt again with ships. Remember, you're going back again. And, but I promised you before you wouldn't see it again. So, again, did God God is saying, like, that's going to be undone. Right, the fact that you're going to have to go back into Egypt against the undoing of the Exodus is really what that's all about. A journey that I promised you would make and never make again. Now, so they've already made this journey before in some way. Well, they have went from Egypt to Israel. Now it was on land, but the journey they made. They never went from the United States or wherever before 
You see what I'm saying? So it's like, what's up with that? Then lastly, the ESV rendering is, there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Now, why would it be a curse that there's no buyer? If you don't want to be in slavery, <clears throat> wouldn't it be a good thing if no one is going to buy you? Because you're like, oh, God, I got out of that one, right? Why would it be a curse to say you're going to offer yourself, there's going to be no buyer? The reason why I bring that up is because in the KJV, it also says, no man shall buy you. But right before that, the KJV says, there you shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen. It's not clear in the KJV who's doing the selling. But because of the way the Hebrew grammar should be translated, the tenses and has to do with passive or reflexive and all this stuff, it is more accurate. And that's why every modern translation does say something like you offer yourselves for sale. Now that makes perfect sense of the passage because it makes sense why you're going to be in such a low estate. You're going to offer yourselves into slavery or servitude of some form, but you're you're going to be so off. There's not even you're going to be so bad off. You won't even be able to find a buyer for you. But then they'll say, well, look, it's right here in front of your eyes. This is clearly what it describes, and uh, you just don't want to believe. Da 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 da. But I spent time on this and was going back and forth. Notice the average person, when they first hear this by Hebrew Israelite and the way it's framed, people are like, whoa, I didn't know that was there. And then the Hebrew Israelite will say, your pastor's not teaching you this, is he? And even if the person's not in church, they'll think, I've never heard this in church before. Who are these guys with all this extra information that I didn't know about? What? Tell me more. And that's the foot in the door. And then people flip into Hebrews of light. And next thing you know, they're out in the corner with the 12 tribes chart. Wow. You know, I, I think that's really important because one of the things, and I know you've brought this out as well, and we've gotten a chance to see it with our own eyes and ears and so forth, was this idea of using obscure eschatological texts from maybe even the minor prophets and so forth, and then giving it a spin and Sadly enough, for a lot of people that have grown up in churches, they don't have a pastor that has typically gone through a lot of these texts, and so a lot of times they do get slipped up. And as you mentioned already, hey, why isn't your pastor telling you about this? It's like he's keeping this secret from you, or Mm -hmm. so forth, or he's so ignorant he doesn't know, and now you're coming Mm -hmm. to us for that true knowledge. And now, I only have about, I don't know, two minutes left with you here, but... I would love if you were just commissioning to someone that maybe is falling for this. Maybe uh, they've, you know, tripped over, been tripped over there on the streets. They heard this and now it's sounding pretty good. And you want to call them back to the truth. What's something that you would do in some, maybe something specifically Bible study wise that, that you would encourage them to look into the scriptures to pull them out of this? I mean, you know, Hebrews lights will accuse Christians of running to Paul, but I'm okay with running to Paul because it's in the canon. And, uh, you know, uh, the best place to go is the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians. I mean, oh my goodness. It's just filled with information and truth that shoots down Hebrewism. I mean, even if an angel from heaven preaches you a gospel contrary to the one you preached, it's interesting that, uh, Abba Bivens and Aria claim to have visions of angels, but even if not, it's the fact that it's a, another, another gospel and I mean, when you go through Galatians and you look at it, you see also that this idea about you know the food laws is is not uh, essential. You can t- see that from Galatians two, and then uh, God says right there in verse uh, six through through Paul, God shows no partiality, and then 
this is a fascinating thing. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. The emphasis there is uh, like the, the sort of ceremonial or outward badge markers or law keeping that was uh, that was that was something that made sense for the Jews to do, but not Gentiles when they were saved. And uh, then it really gets into justification by faith, which Hebrews lights essentially deny. Verse uh, 15 of chapter 2, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's fascinating. And then in Galatians 3, it gets even more powerful because then he points to the example of Abraham and shows how all nations will be blessed. Now, a lot of Hebrews lights don't really believe all nations will be blessed, or if they do, they have to change it. It's a blessing just to know us or to be enslaved to us, but that's not what it's saying because verse 8 says, Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Now, some of them try to literally change that Gentile there to actually mean Israelite. I kid you not. But then you get into the beauty of the gospel. The righteous shall live by faith. Boom, 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 boom. And then at the end of Galatians 3, you get, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So who's a true Israelite? It's those who believe in Christ. Who's Abraham's offspring, really? Those who believe in Christ. Those are the recipients of the promise, not just physical offspring of Abraham, that's incredibly important. And that's, inc- I mean, it, literally right there. If you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so I think that's very important for people to see and realize. It's amazing, right? And uh, then you also have Galatians 4, which continues on. And, you know, I know you only had a few minutes left, but I would just say if you become familiarized with Galatians, and then, of course, there's some other great places to go, especially Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, which uh, starting in verse 11, talks about being one in Christ. That's a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture, Ephesians 2. And then in Revelation, where you have every nation, tribe, and tongue, and the song they're singing is about the Lamb who was slain, not about you know works of the law that were kept or something like that. It's about the Lamb and, and His sacrifice. And so I think Galatians is a real strong antidote to Hebrewism. Uh, actually, a proper understanding of Romans is as well, but that can get tricky for people when they are going to wade through Romans 9 through 11. But you have to have some facility to, to do that because Hebrewsites do like to go there and, and cherry pick certain passages. But those are some key ones, as well as understanding the relationship of the Old Testament with the New Testament. So if you understand the background to Abraham's call and the covenant that Yahweh made with him, how it was ultimately not just for him and Israel, but to bless all nations. If you start to uh, see that, you'll you'll understand, okay, okay, God's plan has always been unfolding. It's just that it went through Israel to get to Christ, and now everything comes through Christ. And uh, it's like this overall understanding of the Bible story is very helpful. And I think Galatians is a great place to do that, because even in Galatians itself, there's a great interplay between the Old and New Testaments, and it gives you a better idea how to understand these concepts, law, grace, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And there's good books on this. For example, this is what I recommend, Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. This is a fantastic book that really gets you started on understanding the interplay, the continuity, the discontinuity. And look, Christians, we should care about this stuff anyway. So I like dealing with Hebrews lights because it also helps get me into the, my Bible. And the more I get into my Bible, the more I fall in love with Jesus. So it's a beautiful thing. It's a win-win. Amen. I, you couldn't have ended it on a better note. So we wanted to thank you so much, Vocab, for sitting down and 
talk with us. It is a is a heady topic. There's a lot of stuff to go through, and it's so nice having somebody traverse that so that we can uh, learn from you. So I want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, Vocab Malone. Right, thank you very much, Chad, and keep it up. Good fight radio. <laughs> Amen, bro. Thank you guys so much for joining us. God bless you guys. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.